We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. On this episode, I speak with Nathan Rose, entrepreneur and author. We dig into crowdfunding and how lots of people use it to fund their ideas. Nathan is a world traveler who now lives in the country of Georgia. His experience with the digital nomad lifestyle has given him some great insights into how to stay productive. Nathan has lived and worked all over the world. This has made him appreciate being regular and orderly in his life so that he may be violent and original in his work. One of his productivity hacks is to set daily goals as well as using his desktop background to display these goals so that he always sees what he's working on. He also focuses on one thing at a time to get away from working on random things that might pop up like those dirty dishes. If you're looking to crowdfund an idea, Nathan's upcoming book, Rewards Crowdfunding, will shed some light on the process, including what category of products do the best. Rewards Crowdfunding is a great example of what one has to do to be successful in any type of creative project, be it a book, product company, or even a nonprofit. We also discuss what he feels is the most beautiful type of art to create. Now, let's get better together. Nathan Rose, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Jerry. Great to be here again, actually. Oh yeah, that's true. We've uh, we've known each other for three, three, four years now. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know your background, what you're doing now, and where you've come from? Yeah, sure. So the the first time we spoke, it was when I was releasing my first book, 
and the subject of that one was equity crowdfunding. So I've actually uh, gone ahead and published two more books since then for a total of three and about to finish number four and I've come all the way back to crowdfunding one more time. So the first book, Equity Crowdfunding for Startups and Growing Companies, that's that's where the crowd is investing in the company raising the funds. Um, but the new book, the, the new one that I've been working on is the type of crowdfunding that people will be perhaps more familiar with just in the general public. And that's the type that you see on Kickstarter and Indiegogo where you're um, pre-ordering a product or um, an experience or some other perk. So um, yeah, just over the last little while, I've been very busy interviewing and talking to startup founders and entrepreneurs and creators of all walks of life about um, their best crowdfunding tips and put that into a package which I hope people will be able to learn a lot from. Yeah, well, I I really enjoyed the the first book that you know the crowdfunding, the equity crowdfunding one, and it just so happened that my company at the time, Lab Sensor Solutions, actually went out and tried to do an equity crowdfunding raise. Uh, weren't successful. It wasn't, but it wasn't because of your book. <laughs> it okay. was just because you know no one wanted to invest uh, in our company. You know that happens, but I, I do like the style in which you have written your books and it's it's they're just very well researched very well done very pragmatic you know very uh you know steps what you need to do in order to do it with some good stories and everything so i mean how did you get to writing a book about equity crowdfunding um so my my background yeah before i went off and did my own thing i i started off as an investment banker so that's uh, sort of work has got a lot in common with equity crowdfunding. As an investment banker, what you're doing is you're taking um, early stage companies and, and and later stage companies too. But but I always enjoyed the earlier stage companies and helping them to raise capital from the public. So when when I was in the um, corporate world, I remember a couple of companies we helped. One was a, a SaaS company, software as a service, um, and the second one was a uh, small craft brewery, and, and I just always remember thinking that, that those guys were a lot more fun to deal with than the, you know, the big utility companies or the, you know, the the, the very big incumbent sort of corporations, which which was the other side of what we did. So, um, the book really came out of the fact that I was when I, when I started doing my own thing, I was uh, got into this industry of equity crowdfunding, and. Yeah, the book came out of the clients that I'd been working with and just the fascination I guess I had with the whole space, which was taking what something that's been done for a very long time in the corporate world with investment banking and, and bringing it to even earlier stage startups. Yeah, because it, it had just, what was it? What was the act here in the US? It was- uh, Jobs Act. The Jobs Act, right. Right, because it had- I think it literally just happened around, what, 2016, 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. When my book came out in late 2016, it was still very new in the US. And, you know, obviously a few years have passed since then and um, we've seen it We've seen it mature. Um, yeah, at the time the book came out, most of the examples in the book were by necessity from outside of the US because that's where it had started before. And so clearly you're... Uh, from another country other than America, although you sound like you speak the king's English. Uh, what, where are you? Um, <laughs> where are you living now? 
I'm in Tbilisi, Georgia. So that's Georgia, the country, not uh, Georgia in the United States. Always have to clear that one up for people. Yeah. So uh, Georgia, if people imagine uh, Turkey and kind of look at the intersection between Turkey and Russia, there's an area of uh, an area of the world called, called the Caucasus, where you've got Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. So through the wonders of technology, that's how we're communicating today. Yeah, because I know when we first started talking to each other, you were in, I think you were in Hungary, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when I was a bit uh, less settled than I am now. Um, not that I'm extremely settled now, but uh, I, I do have a home base in, in Tbilisi. But yeah, I have had the uh, privilege over the last little while to to travel and, and live in a few different countries as a as a digital nomad. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I wanted to kind of get at because, uh, of course, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of people are starting to work from home and kind of have to if they can. If they can't, then they have to find different things. Um, so what, what, are, what were some of your like aha moments as you were kind of digitally nomading around the country or around the world, actually? What, what are some of the things that you would kind of do daily to, to kind of help you stay productive and, you know, just find, you know, find business, you know, all, all the things that people wonder about when, um, when they're, they choose this lifestyle. Well, we can, we can talk very, very tactically about uh, tools and, and these kinds of things. These are the kinds of things that you discover when you, you, know, you, you have to deal across multiple time zones. So you discover things like, Calendly for scheduling meetings, and you, you just learn how to talk about yourself in a in a way that is of interest to uh, to clients. And you know, when 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 I'm doing the kind of research that I do for my books as well, like pitching the the fact that I'd like someone else to talk with me, right? And and you know, just just figuring out which kinds of responses that elicits. Um, some of the other things that. Some of the other things that keep, help you stay productive. I mean, I guess one of the reasons that I've ended up settling is because I found it really hard. And a lot of, a lot of people find this as well. Like after a, a period of exploration and, uh, and so on, that they find projects which are more important to them than traveling is. So, you know, when I'm always reminded of the, uh, the quote, I think by Gustave Flaubert, he, he said something along the lines of, um, be regular and orderly in your life so that you can be violent and original in your work. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think one of the things that many digital nomads discovered, and, and maybe this is just part of growing up a bit as well, is that um, once you've had this period of exploration and, and seeing a lot of things, you, you decide on a path and you decide on something that you want to do. And uh, ha having a bit more stability can be can be useful for actually achieving those higher level goal, higher level goals. And, and okay. No, I mean, I, I've never been a digital nomad. I mean, I, yeah. I just work from home, <laughs> which uh, for me, this during this time is just like normal, right? You know, everyone's like, Oh, what do I do all day? How do I stay productive? And I'm all, well, it takes some time to get used to it, but it is interesting that you mentioned that the, the home base, um, you know, once you, I wouldn't say get it out of your system because I don't kind of like that terminology, but it is interesting that the, uh, 
you know, the travel and the, the, the ability to do all what you do. I mean, write a book, interview people, even as a freelancer, I know a lot of people that have, um, you know, just sort of traveled around the world and doing freelance work. Is, is there something in your sort of daily routine now that, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of people are having to work from home. What's sort of your daily routine like to, to stay productive and to kind of get all the work done you need to get done? I mean, I do the normal things like setting daily goals and deciding upon the most important task of the day. Something that I've implemented just recently is using the uh, the computer background screen, like on the desktop, where where I'll I'll put on my um, most important goal of the week, so it's yeah. always there as a reminder. Hmm. You know, every time you see the desktop, there it is. That's, that's the reminder, <laughs> just staring you in the face. Like, are you working on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, huh. so you know, you have goals for the year, you have goals for the week you have goals for the day and i think the the big thing about working from home is trying as much as possible to focus on one thing at a time because you know even though i'm more um used to this kind of working from home thing than than most it is still a bit of an adjustment this this covid-19 thing like most more more likely i'll tend to work from co-working space and co-working spaces and having that separation between work and home um but when you're at home i find you know maybe maybe actually you're the expert here who can tell me but uh, i find uh yeah it is it is easy to just find little random chores to you know oh that that pot needs cleaning or that oh yeah could be done oh yeah (laughs) yeah no i i find the same challenge um i i mean i used to so I actually used to have an office and literally last November I got rid of it just because I, I never went. And, um, it, p- part of the reason is, is because, yeah, I would just, most of my business is online or phone calls, right? I don't have to really worry about meeting people, although meeting people face to face is always great and also helps, you know, move things along. But, you know, what I've found for me personally, is I have my own like setup, like my own desk. It's like my space to work and that's the workspace. And throughout the day, I try to, you know, have these like, like what you said, like goals of the day, but mine are mostly in like micro chunks. So what do I want to do this hour? I'll have a meeting coming up. Like I'm, you know, we're, we're doing the podcast. So you know, there's, there's a bit of prep I have to do and I have to make sure everything's settled in, but I try to have quantifiable goals each, each day and then each half day and then, you know, each hour and and not rigorous, just, okay. Like you said, like, what's the goal of the day? I I don't, I don't put it on the desktop, which is actually a pretty good idea. I, I like that idea. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's just a question of, not like if if you're one of those types of people that they they look at all the dirty dishes in the sink and you're like oh I got to get them done before I do anything else then you're going to need to break the habit because uh that uh that will definitely distract you definitely distract you so hopefully that people that'll are pretty, uh, people are pretty adaptable though you know oh, it'll yeah. be a challenge for oh, yeah. a little while but through necessity and through just the fact that you have to do it and there's no choice <laughs> No, you, no, no. People, people will learn. No, yeah, and and you see a lot of that online now. 
as well as a lot of like ad hoc communities, which I always find incredible how resilient people are, you know, and, and how they come together and really try to help each other. I mean, that's the whole point of me doing this podcast is to sort of give, you know, people's opinions and kind of their thoughts on the traits, values, and beliefs of the entrepreneur community, you know, and the skills required, because I think moving forward, you're going to need to be more entrepreneurial. And and it's really interesting that your book about, I think it's reward crowdfunding. Is that the next topic? Rewards crowdfunding. Right. Rewards crowdfunding, right. Um, and so that's why I think that's really curious about how you're, you know, in some sense, more and more things are going to be built this way where, and, and I'll, and, and I, I'm going to really butcher it <laughs> and then, and then you can correct me, but you know, this idea of, I have an idea and then I want to make sure that it's an idea I should pursue is really fascinating. And, you know, platforms like, you know, Indiegogo and um, Kickstarter are just two of them that, that you can do that. On. So wh- why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of that process, um, not only what it's about, but also, you know, how you've, how you're writing the book, how, how, how it, how it's different from the, the last couple of books you've written. And, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll just sort of meander down the path of uh, rewards crowdfunding. Yeah. And I think rewards crowdfunding is a, a great, um, well, there's a lot of parallels there for just how entrepreneurship or book writing or getting any kind of project off the ground really works. And, and this is why it's been so fascinating to me. Like I, I have not myself done a rewards crowdfunding campaign. I haven't, I haven't done one. I've written a book about it. I've researched it. Um, I've spoken to all these agencies and people who have done it. But as I've been hearing their stories, it's just striking how many of of their stories are exactly the same as as launching a book. You know, there's this there's this thing in our culture about the starving artist, right? The the uh, you know you can't make money doing art, you can't make money being a creative person, and and I think the reason for that is that most creative people are not really thinking about what it is that the audience wants. So what I've tried to do with with this book and with all my writing is, is to try to change the reader's mindset from like how, how can you make what you want to create an intersection between with what you want to create and what the audience wants, right? Like narrowing that gap between the creator and the audience. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think yeah. the constrained creativity, I think is what you're talking about is spot on. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's it's like I don't, I don't think that this is selling out. By the way, it's not it's not that no. the creator has to sacrifice themselves for what they really want to do, but but it's just undergoing that search, right, so that they can create something which is going to be valuable and yeah, connected to the audience. I mean, that, that's that that I think is the most beautiful art of all, where you oh, create something for a public. I agree. I agree. I mean, that's just like musicians or. Even writers, you know, I, I I write books as well, and uh, have a lot of writer buddies that, uh, you know, some of them have the attitude that it's just my art, and I'm going to write it for myself, and that's just great. 
Others, yeah. you know, want to write for the market. And, you know, there's a tension and a conflict between that. But, you know, when those market forces and your creativity align, that's like you said, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and it definitely, definitely depends on your goal. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that art just purely for the expression of it can't be a great thing. Um, but if you want to make this your vocation, then of course it has to be something that others appreciate. So, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of broken it down into a few different steps that, that I think uh, can be useful for, for listeners to, um, to learn from. Um, and, and I think what's been really striking through the process of writing this book is, is finding out how the campaign is not really the validation of the idea, which is, which is probably a mistake that most people make, right, when they think of crowdfunding. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they think, okay, I'll put the idea on, on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, and if it raises a bunch of money, then that's my validation. It's like, no, actually, the validation is a lot earlier than that. The, the, the validation is in coming up with the idea and seeing if it works as a conversation, right? Like, can this, this thing that I'm thinking of making um, – what do you think of it? So that's one level, having it as a conversation. And then based on that feedback, you sort of narrow it down and find out what people find interesting, what people find boring, or what people find superfluous. Taking that and forming the idea more concretely, and that could be perhaps through a, a render or a sketch um, or a, a prototype, you know, another step forward, right? So as you get... As you get more and more feedback, you're you're sort of narrowing the idea and making it more tangible, so that hopefully by the time the the campaign launches, or if you want to take this in another field, if it's not crowdfunding, by the time that the the business launches, or by the time the book launches, you've actually you're actually already quite certain that the thing is going to work because you've built it with the audience all the way from the ground up. Oh, it's I mean it. <laughs> it's kind of like the mentality or the uh the what's it called the minimum viable product route that a yeah. lot of startups go through where they do these uh iterations of a product with you know a bunch of stakeholders so it is interesting that that methodology is starting to gain more and more traction because i mean i i certainly well i mean if you if you talk to like guys like Steve Jobs who who are like Hey, they don't know what they want until I tell them, <laughs> which, you know, okay, maybe in some cases that's true per, per se, but I don't think so for most things. Um, you know, especially now where the means of production, the means of communication are pretty much democratized. I mean, you can, you can get anything built. You can pretty much communicate your vision, although it's getting harder and harder with, you know, all the, the noise out there and all the content, but it's, remarkably easy given enough hard work to see if something works. And, and I, I kind of like this idea for just about anything. Um, and I think what was the guy that guy that wrote the Martian, which is a very famous book, you know, and, and also became a movie. I think he wrote it like as a blog series of blog posts to try to get reader feedback. And then obviously as things went along, kind of refine it. So how have you found that process? I mean, who, who, when it comes to this iteration, 
sort of the, you know, getting people to kind of give you feedback. The, the people you've interviewed for the book, how, how did they go about doing that? And and really, what was their experience with it? How how did it work out for them? Yeah, I, I want to quickly just talk on that um, on that Steve Jobs quote though, because it, it's it's really interesting and it's usually used as a rebuttal to the the idea that great products can be created through user testing. There's there's also the quote from Henry Ford, right? That if if he asked people what they wanted, then they would have told them that they wanted a faster horse, right? Henry, right, right, Henry right. Ford, of course, being the creator of Ford Motor Company and the mass production of cars, but no, I, th- I think it's it's about what your risk tolerance is. You know, for every Steve Jobs and for every Henry Ford, there are a thousand people who you've never heard of because their world-changing thing just turned out to be of no interest to anyone, <laughs> right? So, the, the, <laughs> like most startups, <laughs> most startups are that way. Yeah, but but ninety nine ninety nine percent of businesses are solving a problem which people can articulate. So, you know, yeah, if you want to create a car in a world full of horses, you know, really create something unlike anything the world has ever seen, then, you know, then maybe the Steve Jobs or the Henry Ford quote are correct. But, but I think for most people, you can carve out a very nice, successful life um, without needing to be that original. So, um, but, but to the, to the other question you asked about like how others have, have done it. I mean, one, one idea that comes to mind is a, um, there's a friend of mine, actually, who I was able to interview for the book. Uh, he created uh, earphones for motorcyclists. So motorcyclist, he wants to listen to his music while he's riding on his motorcycle. Pretty hard to do. You know, earphones are bulky. They're, um, they need to be powerful enough, though, to get over the top of motorcycle noise. So the first thing that he did is he created a, a sketch of his idea, um, put it onto a website landing page, and through a few hundred dollars of Facebook advertising at this, at this, uh, at this website, you know, so he saw whether people would click on the ad first of all. And then once they were on the website, would they enter their email address? Um, would they want to learn more? And, you know, for a few hundred dollars of investment and perhaps an afternoon or a day of, of setting up that website and, and running the ads, he, he, had an idea as to, you know, is this something that people want or do I need to go away and change things now, right? Right. Before spending the months and years, you know, as it turned out years to actually get these things manufactured. So he got to find that out that people were interested in that um, very quickly. Yeah. I have a friend um, who does a lot of that sort of stuff as well. He'll put up landing pages and see what, sticks (laughs) sticks <laughs> so that he can go figure out what to go build or buy or source. And, you know, again, like your friend being able to do that is because of all the infrastructure that's been built over the last couple of decades. I mean, no other point in history where you can do so much with not a lot of capital. Um, and that I think is a great thing and a kind of can also be a very distracting thing because there's just a lot of stuff out there. Uh, wait, right, so true. Yeah. yeah. And, and so did you, are you going to crowd, are you going to rewards crowdfund the book or the book's just going to be the book and you're going to launch it like you launched the other ones? 
you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question and it's one that I've, it's the one that I've toyed with. You know, it's, it's interesting when you do look at which books have been successful on rewards crowdfunding and, um, what they all have in common is that they are all, they're all a work of art in the actual physical product itself. So huh. information heavy books like the type that I write, um, don't tend to do so well. The, the types that do do very well are, cookbooks, um, photography books, books about famous bands. There was uh, another person I interviewed for the book who did a just an absolutely beautiful book with photos and everything about um, the band ABBA. ABBA. So, <laughs> so, so, Love ABBA. Yeah, raised, raised like 100,000 euros for this book. And, oh, um, wow. You know, as a result, he could, he could spend his time nice. um, as an author and as a person who's interested in this making this wonderful thing and spending spending his time in the way that he loved to spend his oh, time. Oh, that is super. You need to send me the link to that because I have a friend, Danny, who is a big, 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 big ABBA fan. And fun fact for all you Eurovision folks out there, which a lot of people in the U.S. don't know what Eurovision is, they won Eurovision, I think, in the 70s. So, is that right? Yeah, right. They, they, you know, I'll put, I'm going to put a link to the ABBA Eurovision winning song as well as everyone needs to... Uh, Watch Eurovision. <laughs> I know it's silly, but such a great. It's such a. Anyway, it will. Well, I'll, I, I digress. But, but that's great. So yeah, I mean, I know I, I've read a little bit of the of the book because you sent me a, a f- couple of chapters. What what products work the best for rewards crowdfunding? I mean, you touched a little bit on it when it comes to books, but what about for other things? What what works best and what doesn't work? Well, the, the certain. They have uh, certain things in common. So the price needs to be within a certain range. So anything that's cheaper than, say, $10 or more expensive than $500 tends to be out. Um, at the low end, that's just because the effort that goes towards finding a backer tends to not be enough if the price is too low. Whereas at the high end, you know, above five hundred dollars, and there are exceptions, but you know that's a that's a ballpark figure. People start to want to actually touch the thing and hold it in their hands and have a bit more trust before they um, drop too much money on someone who hasn't actually created their product yet. Uh, so that's one thing. Of course, it needs to be shippable in the post or a digital download. Um, so that makes any kind of services tough. And it needs to be open to some kind of differentiation. Uh, so you know, to pr- provide a few concrete examples, what have done well in the past, we have wallets, backpacks, um, any kind of jewellery, accessories. Creative projects can do well too if they can be delivered digitally. So documentaries have been funded through rewards crowdfunding. Um, books, as I mentioned, Clothing, you know, clothing can get a little bit difficult because you have sizing and and, and these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it has to be, it has to be something that's got international appeal. I mean, you can crowdfund local projects, like if you have a, a community hall which needs to raise funds, um, that can be done. But because of the global reach of these crowdfunding platforms, it's always going to have the most potential if your product or project can. Um, actually take advantage of that global audience that Kickstarter and Indiegogo have built. 
Yeah, and I know when we were doing for Lap Sensor when we were doing the trying to do the equity crowdfunding raise. One of the the rules it was like sort of like a, a rule of thumb was a third, a third, a third, and the it was something like if however much money you're going to raise, you should have at least the ability to raise a third of it on your own from your own like network. Mm. And then another third through a platform and then another third through, I think word of mouth or something. It does, does that, is that, does that sound right? Is that a, or did I get that wrong? <laughs> so for equity or for rewards? I mean, either, but actually for both. I mean, you you are you are the actual global authority on this now, Nathan. So <laughs> I've got the expert. <laughs> well, I, I think it depends a lot on the platform. Okay. I mean, I hate I hate the answer. It depends, right? Because yeah. Of course, it always depends. It but, always depends. But okay, yeah. If you if you if you choose a large platform with an audience of its own, right? Like the equivalent of listing on Amazon.com or Airbnb. There are platforms which are big and there are platforms which are small. So if you go on a big platform, you're going to get more of the platform's audience. But like general rule of thumb, yeah, I think you need to have 50% of your funding goal um, ready for either equity or rewards. And if you're on a smaller platform, it needs to be more than 50%. You're going to need to bring more of that yourself. You know, the, 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 way to, the way to tweak that, of course, is that you can set a lower funding goal and you know, many of the companies talked talked about this. How it's a bit of a game, right? It's that you want to get to one hundred percent funded quickly, which provides social proof, um, which then increases your conversion rate to new people who come on board. So, if you can set a lower funding goal, then that's going to it's going to help. Hmm. So, as an example, let's say you wanted to raise. Let's say you needed fifty grand for some project. Yeah. Um, my guess is there's sort of a sweet spot of how much is the best to to be able to raise as an example of let's say you have this $50,000 goal and you only you only have at your disposal like 10 grand would that mean that you should probably try to raise 20 grand or I guess, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like a bit of alchemy, right? I mean, because when we did, I mean, I have experience with this, you know, when we did our, our equity crowdfunding and um, the numbers, you know, we didn't make it, um, but it was, it was, it, 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 I think it kind of fell along the lines you just said. It was maybe 50% third or something like that, but it, but it was pretty, pretty consistently that way. And then I did another one, it was a, fundraise for a nonprofit uh, for a specific project. And it was basically, it worked out about a third. We had, we raised, we had about a third committed and then the rest kind of came in and we hit our goal on that one. But yeah, is there, um, would that be something that you would recommend in the book or is that what other people have found? Well, to, to, to use the numbers that you just threw out there, like I think if you need 50,000 to do what you need to do, then that has to be your minimum. It, it's, but if you have like an internal goal, which is higher than that, like if you, if you would like to raise 200,000, um, but you need 50,000, then, then that 50,000 should be your minimum, I'd say. I think if you, if you only have 10,000 lined up and you need 50, 
then that's where you just need to say, hey, we're not ready yet. We need to actually go out there and build more of a crowd before we're ready to put this thing out to the general public. Because, um, yeah, when you when you launch and you get that 10,000 in, let's say, best case scenario, you're going to have that slider bar, which is the ultimate social proof. The slider bar is going to say 20% funded, and then all the people who come to that page are going to say, eh, probably doesn't look like it's going to fund. I don't even need to watch the video. I don't even, I don't even need to read the materials that you've spent so long putting yeah, together. But we spent a um, lot of time putting that stuff you spend, together. You spend a lot of time doing it, but, but you know, what people do first of all is they'll look at that slider bar. You know, they make a snap judgment based on that as to whether they even bother to read all that extra information or, or watch the video. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like the reviews on on Amazon or on Google, right? That before you look at the restaurant, now you look at the you look at the reviews. Right? Yeah. Okay, is it above four stars? Yeah. Yes. Okay, That's we'll look true. further. If it's below four stars, just try another one. So, yeah, I'm, people are very making these judgments super quickly. So it's extremely important. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I uh, one day I'm going to write a book called Three and a Half Stars, <laughs> which is just about that bubble, you know, because I've been to plenty of local places that have been three and a half stars and they've been just great. But, you know, that's just me, right? Right. So wh- why um, why did you pick uh, Georgia as your uh, home base, getting back to uh, the nomad lifestyle? Well, I mean, after trying a few places, um, it had a lot of the things that I that I like and value. So, um, as you said at the top of the show, I'm, I'm not from the US. I'm from the deep south. I'm from uh, a place called New Zealand. And, um, Georgia actually reminds me of New Zealand in many ways. Of course, totally different history, but like New Zealand, Georgia has got mountains. It's got forests. It's got a geothermal area. It's got a wine region. It's got some big cities. So you can have all the, uh, cosmopolitan dining options. Well, normally you have all the cosmopolitan dining options. At the moment, we've got supermarkets and cooking at home, but uh, hopefully that won't last forever. Um, but yeah, it, it, so it reminds me of home, but it's also um, different enough, right? Like I, to, to me, I've, I'd never really appealed to live in a place like the UK, which is culturally so similar to New Zealand, you know, all the same sports, the same language, um, similar history historical links so yeah georgia it's it's this nice balance for me between uh comfort and yeah adventure and so do you think that because you have that kind of the entrepreneur mindset that having that you know seeking adventure in different places is sort of in your kind of in your dna or was it something that you kind of had to work up to because i mean you know New Zealand to Georgia is a really long way away. Yeah. Um, New Zealand to anywhere is a really long yeah, way. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, yes, New Zealand to anywhere other than New Zealand is a long way away. W- was this something that you've always had as growing up or, you know, h- how did you kind of get into this, you know, entrepreneur type lifestyle? Um, I think it's, I think it's curiosity that, that, Maybe this is why I enjoy being a writer as well. You know, I, I enjoy inquiry and playing with ideas and trying to come to a conclusion and and teaching. 
Um, so, you know, look, the, the, the world of employment, it, it, it suits some people really well because they've, they've got a lot more stability, they've got a lot more certainty, they've got a lot, you know, there's a, a set path to follow. But, yeah, I think where I came to for me was that I enjoyed just um, finding my own path a bit more and just pursuing what interests me. So, yeah, this this crowdfunding thing, you know, having done two books on it now, it's uh, it's become a bit a bit of a theme. But um, yeah, I, I think I think most of all, I I love seeing how ideas can start from from nothing and then get that initial bit of momentum, right, and get that initial traction. Because it's like once you've got that traction, things become a lot easier. Now we were just talking about it before with the slider bar. You know, once you've once you've got 100% funded, then everyone comes on board. But but how do you actually get that first little bit of traction in the first place? So I think I think this is why crowdfunding has uh, been something that I've returned to for this for the second book. And um, yeah, possibly that curiosity is why I came to entrepreneurship. Is there a big entrepreneur community in Georgia? Um, there are. There's, uh, you know, it's funny having comparing different places. You know, I've been to all of the digital nomad hotspots now, or most of them. I've been to Bali. I've been to Chiang Mai. I've been to um, Medellin in, in Colombia, South America. Um, been to some of the European ones as well. I think I think the kind of person that Georgia tends to attract are, yeah, people who are who are into living a bit more on the frontier. So, but but you know, I have seen it change over the last few years. Um, it was hard to get a good cup of coffee. Very important <laughs> for New Zealanders. Yeah, well, that's 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 a showstopper for me. <laughs> right, but but now it's actually pretty good. I have to say, oh. it's not a, not not as good as back home, but but still. Pretty good, you know, passable. Um, so is there an entrepreneur community? Yeah, yeah, there, there are. There are. There's sort of different entrepreneurs, though. Like in, in somewhere like Chiang Mai, they're the real online entrepreneur types, you know, the, the people who are, who are running the funnels and doing the online courses or yeah. you know, drop shipping or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, in, in Georgia, there's a lot of people who are into property development or you know, starting businesses on the ground and, mm-hmm. and some of the agricultural stuff, adding value through you know, bringing um, some of the expertise that you have in Western countries around branding and marketing and adding value to primary products and, and then taking that to export markets. Uh, but yeah, there's, um, there's a little bit of everything in Georgia, which is kind of nice too. And I mean, it, it's, a, it's an independent country, right? It was former Soviet bloc or... Yep, it used to be part of the Soviet Union and uh, got its independence in 1991, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is there still some of the remnants of the old Soviet structure? Because I know when I was in uh, uh, Budapest, um, you know, you don't have to throw a rock very far to see the old Soviet Union stuff. Well, that's interesting you say that. To, to, to me, Budapest feels, felt very like central European you know, with the old style architecture and castles and palaces and, and this kind of thing. Uh, I, I would definitely say that Tbilisi is a lot more Soviet architecture than, than Budapest. Um, mm. You've got the murals, you've got the, 
uh, you know, the old concrete, the, the very sort of um, grey, uh, monolithic yeah. apartment blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that they are everywhere. And it's, it's kind of strange because, like, again, as a, as a Westerner, I and others find this kind of thing really interesting, but for 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 Georgians, this is like a reminder of this horrible period in, in their past, which right they they would sooner like demolish it all and start know, build, over, build something new and modern, and yeah, it's yeah, it's it's totally understandable, right? These people don't want to, no one wants to live in a um, in a museum, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there are statues from the Soviet era still, even though most of them have been torn down and and uh other 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 little reminders here and there like you see the hammer and sickle on the subway yeah. system yeah yeah um, yeah yeah it well i mean i guess when, when i when you know when i was in budapest you know uh, we were visiting family so we were on kind of the outskirts but we we went to this sculpture garden which basically had all the old soviet sculpture they put it in kind of one place so you could see it and they had all the soviet music and all the little propaganda um but we you know yeah budapest proper yeah i I agree but when we were kind of going out in the um the more not so modern cities is the same kind of architecture these concrete you know high-rise apartments that like you get in the elevator and you're like, we're not going to make it because <laughs> this thing's going to die. You know, we're going to, we're going to die. Um, but, but it is interesting. So, so do you think that in Georgia, you know, from an entrepreneur, do, do you think that their kind of their traits, values, and beliefs are different than the rest of the world? Or are they just sort of starting to get more into capitalism? Or is it just a question of, Hey, you know, we've got these resources and business is business and, you know, we're just going to do what we know. I mean, the, the, the Georgian mindset, it's, um, it's a, it's an interesting, an interesting one. I think there's a real difference between the young people and the, the older people. I'd say anyone under the age of about 30 or 35, you know, and that matches when they got independence and they started looking more towards the West and, um, had that aspiration to be a European country rather than a, a post-Soviet country. Um, this kind of person of that of that generation tends to be a lot more optimistic and entrepreneurial. Um, just just through the fact that they've had access to to Western culture, I suppose, and, and exposure to Western ideals. Um, the older people. Yeah, they they're, they have had a pretty hard life, right? They had a pretty hard upbringing, and it's understandable to see that they are still kind of, you know, they just want stability. They want things to stay the same. Um, but I do find it that among the young people, that this is a, a real sense of of optimism and energy, and you know, things are going to be better in the future than they than they were in the past. You know, imagine someone someone who's thirty years old. You know, they've they've seen their country change from a place which had um, like Soviet rule to yeah. um, a place which had basically lawless, lawlessness after yeah. the Soviet Union broke up, um, electricity shortages, food shortages, and, and then have seen all this reform. And it, it's, it's incredible to think, you know, we, all of us feel like we've seen a lot of change in our lifetime, but yeah. I, I think someone in 
a country like this has really seen a lot of change in their lifetime, right? You know, I mean, yeah, it's unrecognizable like, now compared yeah. to 30 years ago. Yeah, like, yeah, the last 30 years sound like huge amount. I mean, a lot of change in all the for, former Soviet Union. I mean, even in the Soviet Union, I mean, they're really not communism, communist anymore, per se. I mean, they're really embracing entrepreneurship as well as business. It's a little bit different because obviously they've got more state control. I mean, China's similar in that the the real driver of economic growth and prosperity and the wealth of nation comes from letting people have a little autonomy to go figure out what people need. And, you know, I, I can't think of a better way to do it, obviously within, <laughs> within reason and constraints. And of course I'm biased because, <laughs> you know, I'm an entrepreneur and feel it's a, one of the great uh, things that uh, we let people do. So. And um, there is a big there is a big startup scene in in Georgia too. So, oh, okay. Um, again, it's a, a bit of a strange time that we're speaking now. But if, if someone's listening to this a, a few months in the future, uh, when hopefully all this is done, yeah. Um, yeah. If if you if you think of visiting, uh, and I think there's a really rich pool of talent of 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 young intelligent english speaking motivated people who who want uh who want work or are looking for opportunities in startup land like uh, startup grind which is the the google program which um basically encourages entrepreneurship at the startup level startup grind had their they, they have one every year in in san francisco i believe yeah um, in silicon valley yeah and then they have one one global one and the global one last year was in tbilisi wow so they 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 have, they're they're getting like five hundred people to attend their um, just their ordinary monthly get-togethers. Whoa! Again, not now because of yeah coronavirus, but, right. but before all that happened, um, yeah. There's lots of there's lots of young people here who are who are very keen to embrace digital online, um, you know, new new ways of working. So uh, it's worth checking out for people who are listening. Yeah. No, I mean a lot of the former Soviet bloc, a lot of the Eastern European, the Caucasus are really starting to take off in that way because of this, you know, concept of, you know, you could pretty much if you're doing digital stuff, SaaS, you know, software, a lot of that, you don't need people locally to do. And a lot of them are really, you know, really great, talented people. I think one of, one of the clients I work with has got a team so I don't know, I don't remember exactly where, but it's in the Caucasus or Eastern Europe and they're just, yeah, it's just, you know, super smart, know a lot about, um, entrepreneurship and yeah, they just want a chance, you know, because, you know, again, they've seen the huge amount of change in the last 30 years, which is just crazy. And I think, you know, as time goes on, we're going to see more and more change like this and the countries and the communities that can kind of embrace this entrepreneurial mindset, I think are going to be a lot better off. So I am uh, really looking forward to the new book. Do, do you have any date on when it's coming out or are you still working on it? Still working on it, but uh, it, it won't be long now. It'll be, it'll be April. So it's, um, it's very close to dropping. Awesome. And uh, I'm sure we can <laughs> link it up in the, in the show notes for people. And, oh yeah. Oh no, for sure. For sure. And uh, I will definitely give it a good review because <laughs> I uh, I love what you're doing. And uh, again, 
appreciate you taking the time to get on the podcast all the way from Georgia in the Caucasus, not Georgia in the U.S. And uh, just good luck to everything. And um, yeah, keep in touch. Thanks, Jerry. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting thedailymba.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest that you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about in this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late, and that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, and our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com/keepstock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.